May Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, dwell richly in each of you to comfort and strengthen day by day. Amen. Last week I preached to you about Jesus being incarnate, real, physical, living and moving in our world. We most often talk about the incarnation at Christmas when we celebrate Jesus' birth. Of course, he had already been incarnate for nine months at that point. Jesus was incarnate from the moment that the Spirit miraculously conceived him in Mary's womb, and Jesus continues to be incarnate. He wasn't a ghost, a spirit, when he came out of his tomb on Easter. God raised Jesus bodily from his tomb, just as he will raise all people from their tombs on the last day to stand before him. Now, Jesus sits enthroned bodily in heaven, a human being who is also the eternal God, rules over the whole universe for the good of God's people. The Incarnation is not a doctrine, a biblical teaching, to consign solely to Christmas. The Incarnation matters. Last week we read of the incarnate Jesus walking around, sticking his real fingers in a deaf man's ears and healing. In his Incarnation, Jesus showed us that he cares about us and our real lives in this physical world. This week we see more teaching on the Incarnation in our Bible readings. For today's sermon, we're reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verses 4 to 10. The reading is printed in your bulletin. I'll read it now. The Sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the word of his servant. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Did you catch the incarnation words there? The words in this text that describe physicality. Look it over again and see those aspects of this text. The speaker talks about waking up in the morning as God speaks in his ear. He talks about physical weariness. He describes being beaten Attackers striking him, yanking his beard hair out. They spit on him, mock him. Incarnate physical life, as described by this speaker, is not a cakewalk. He experiences hurt, pain. Morning by morning, you hear an alarm clock going off. What's on the day's agenda? The speaker awakens to face physical suffering, beatings, abuse. Who is this speaker? What's going on in this person's life that they should be subjected to this violence? And honestly, why is this description of what sounds like one of the worst days ever in your Bible? Let's look into the words and see what we find out about our speaker. This person is a follower of the God of Israel. He uses the name Yahweh, God's special name denoted in our English Bibles by all caps, Lord. The speaker says that God has instructed him and given him words that will sustain others who are weary. The only other personal identifier we're given here, though, is that this individual has a beard. And we're given that information in the context of the violence and abuse that this individual has suffered and expects to continue to suffer. There is no hint of a why regarding that suffering in these verses. The speaker never speculates about that, doesn't reveal the reason to us. He simply says, I'm suffering at the hands of enemies, and I know that God will vindicate me. 
That's not a natural response to suffering. Humans look for reasons. Our natural human response is to seek the why behind everything that happens to us. Let me point out how you probably hear this most often. When someone suffers, a hard situation in life, a tragedy, another difficulty, I have heard so many times that either they themselves or someone else saying, everything happens for a reason. I'm asking you this morning, should we speak that way? This is touchy. What we're talking about today, what I'm sharing from God's word with you, deals with pain and hurt and the way those affect us every day of our real incarnate lives. Understand that I'm not trying this morning to browbeat anyone into not using one particular phrase just because it's a pet peeve of mine. No, there is a richness of practical comfort and peace to be found in God's word when we consider thoughtfully how we talk about suffering. That's what I want to give you today. So, again, when people are suffering, hurting, it's common to hear, everything happens for a reason. But what do we mean when we say that? That phrase is always used in a forward-looking sense. Whatever happened to you happened for a reason, and that reason is going to be something positive, something better that's coming for you in the future. That's what people mean when they say that, right? More often than not, we really should apply that phrase backwards instead of forwards. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, sure. And you can often find that reason in the past. I flunked an important class. It's going to impact my academic career, but everything happens for a reason. Well, maybe that reason is you didn't study. And maybe you couldn't study because some other situation came up. Maybe you were just lazy. Either way, we can't look forward and say, this happened for a reason. We know why it happened. Another example. I lost my home in a fire, but everything happens for a reason. How are you going to speculate about the future reason for something like that? The fire department will give you the reason. They'll dig around and say, here's what happened. Short circuit. Electrical fire. Someone threw a cigarette in the garbage. Martin Luther, pastor, preacher, said this about all this reason seeking. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of glory. By that title, Luther means someone who studies God's word and looks for glory. They look for a message in scripture that says that God works in ways that look glorious, good, at the very least logical to us. Theologians of glory look at life and the things which happen to us in life and work to explain how everything actually has some glorious reason for occurring. Before I go on, to be clear, we know God is in control of this world. The Bible specifically says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's Romans 8:28. But there's a difference between saying that and saying there's a positive future good reason for everything. There is no positive future good reason in this life for abuse to happen. For a heart attack to take away a parent and leave the other suddenly raising a family alone. The reason for these things happening is that we live in a sinful, broken, messed up world where th death happens and before we die, we often hurt people and people often hurt us. God's promise in his word is not that there's some reason for these things happening, which you'll see clearly one day. The promise he gives in Romans 8 is that despite the brokenness and sadness, his gift of salvation and eternal life to you and Jesus is never in doubt. That's what the Apostle Paul says after telling us that God works in all things for our good. He continues, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul doesn't say all these things happen for a reason. He's not looking for a why. He says these things hurt. They are not good, but they don't affect our status before God. Again, Luther says 
that the theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. The theologian of glory finds reasons, rationales for why something evil is actually good. But there's another kind of theologian, another kind of student of God's word. Luther continues, a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. A theologian of the cross, someone who studies God's word and sees the centrality not of glory but of the cross, will sit with you when you are in pain and not tell you this happened for a reason. A theologian of the cross will tell you this hurt you and I'm sorry. And I can't give you a reason why. I can only show you love. We are all naturally theologians of glory. And what we're ultimately trying to do when we come up with rationales for everything that happens is to justify God assert his innocence. We are trying to show how God is justified, how we can declare him acceptable in our eyes. When I fail a quiz in school and say, God is reminding me to study, I'm trying to justify him instead of owning up to my own failure. God isn't reminding me to study by making me fail, I just failed. When I reflect on a breakup and say, God was showing me that that wasn't the right person for me, why do we have to ascribe that to God? That person showed you your relationship wasn't working. Let them have their autonomy and stop trying to justify Jesus. He doesn't need your justification. Jesus is innocent. He's the only human being who didn't deserve any of the suffering which struck his life. A perfect child, obedient to his parents. A perfect teacher, showing people what really mattered with lessons that stuck in their heads and to their hearts. A perfect leader, calling out hypocrisy and yet preaching and practicing peace and gentleness. That perfect man was betrayed by one of his closest friends, ramrodded through a corrupt justice system, beaten bloody by soldiers, and killed. Does he need your justification? Do you need to justify Jesus, prove his innocence by now telling him, I understand why you let something happen to me in my life? But we still always want to ask, why? So did Jesus. As he hung on his cross, he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is how truly incarnate, how truly human Jesus became. He wanted an explanation from God like we do. And it's such an odd question that he asks because Jesus had explained why to his own disciples. We saw that in our gospel reading. Jesus at that point knew what the purpose of his cross was going to be. One interpretation of Jesus' question from the cross posits that he was, on the cross, made unaware of his mission. As far as he could tell, his suffering was pointless and unmerited. That interpretation holds water, if you ask me. Why else would he be asking? Even if Jesus knew why he was suffering, though, he asked that question for you. In your place. Jesus hung there and cried out to God the question you and I constantly ask, why is this happening, God, and we want an answer? We want God to justify himself? We demand that he explain things to us? Jesus didn't. He didn't demand that from God. Without an explanation from the Father, who had turned away from his Son, who had hidden himself from the one he had loved for eternity, do you need the Father to justify himself? He gave his one and only Son for you. Jesus' final words to the Father were not, explain yourself, they were, into your hands I commit my spirit. God, I don't understand why. And you have hidden yourself from me. But I know your love, I can only trust you. Sometimes in his grace and love, God does let us see the why of our suffering, but don't put your faith in that. Don't put your faith in understanding God and his ways of working. He is too great for that. 
As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are his ways above ours, the Psalms teach. Don't put your faith in understanding him, put your faith in his promises. That's where our text from Isaiah takes us. The prophet never says, God explained to me why he let me suffer. No, he recounts the suffering, then he simply says, God will vindicate me. And that's what God will do. Jesus will not return one day with lame and limp excuses for your suffering. I was teaching you a lesson. I was opening you up to something greater. Would that justify him before the victims of child abuse? Before innocent civilians brutalized in senseless wars? No. And that will not be what he says. He'll vindicate you, and he'll make it all untrue. He'll resurrect you, just as the Father vindicated and resurrected him. He'll renew your body. It won't be the body that felt your abuser's touch, the body that you used to hurt someone else, renewed, factory reset, washed clean by his innocent blood. We never did identify who the speaker was in Isaiah 50, but Jesus is the only person who perfectly fits what Isaiah describes for us. The only person who lived his whole life not expecting a why from God and who died perfectly trusting in his love. We can't do that. We can't trust God like that, but Jesus trusts. His faith in God's love is credited to you. Jesus' trust in God as he bore up his cross as he suffered is what God sees when he looks at you because of your faith in Jesus as your Savior. We started worship this morning remembering what the world outside is like. I walk in danger all the way, we sang. The world hates that you are a theologian of the cross. It hates the way that you talk about suffering. It hates that you won't speculate about reasons and rationales. It hates that you trust God in the darkness. But because of that faith, worked in you by the Spirit of Christ, you have a word that sustains the weary. You have real comfort to share with the lonely and sad and suffering people you know. Not speculation, not justifications of God, the promise of resurrection and vindication given by the man who died and look is alive forever and ever, who holds the keys of death and Hades. Trust him. Share him. Amen.